0: In theaters and on-demand this Friday, September 14th, Don't Leave Home brings to life a chilling urban legend. It's the film critics are calling Get Out with Catholic Guilt in the Irish Countryside and dubbing an atmospheric waking nightmare. From the teams at Shudder and our very own Nightmare Cinema producing partner, Cranked Up Films, visit www.dontleavehomefilm.com for more information. Additionally, Shudder is giving out a free 30-day trial to check out their service. Use the promo code STAYHOMEPM at checkout. The Blumhouse Podcast Network has just launched an all-new show. Blumhouse presents Fear Initiative, a weekly horror role-playing game podcast. Join Game Master David Ian McKendry as he takes players through a weekly journey of horror-inspired role-playing adventures creepy dolls, soulless killers, and bloodthirsty beats. This RPG is scary as shit, with occasional music numbers. Tune in every week to hear what new horrific quest awaits. Blumhouse's Fear Initiative is now available through the Blumhouse Podcast Network on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Fear Initiative. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk about sequels and remakes. Love them, hate them, or ambivalent about them, they are the heart of the film industry these days. They're not movies anymore. They're franchises, products, brands. Fine, it's an irresistible force, and we are far from immovable objects. And certainly, there is an audience appetite that clamors for multiple helpings of a cinematic meal that they enjoy. Television series offer to appease that appetite on a weekly or bingeable basis. Ours is a hungry maw that must be fed. Movie serials date back to the earliest days of cinema, but now they are $200 million behemoths that come knocking every year or so. And increasingly, it is giving filmmakers with a vision opportunities to work in a world where their imagination is no longer limited by budgetary issues. There have been remakes and sequels for a long, long time. Three or four versions of the Maltese Falcon are out there. The fifth version of A Star is Born is about to be unleashed. Technically, you could even call our miniseries version of Stephen King's The Shining, a remake, I suppose. And one only need to take a look at the long cycle of universal horror classics to dive into the sequel pool. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes a great idea could benefit from an update. I shudder to think of a world without David Cronenberg's spectacular The Fly or Phil Kaufman's 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is one of at least four versions that sprang from Jack Finney's original novel. And, of course, people always point to things like Bride of Frankenstein and Godfather 2 as sequels superior to the originals. Simply put, a good movie is a good movie regardless of its roots. Though writers and directors are often handed a mandate to make a movie with a number in the title, that isn't a creative death sentence. Sometimes it's an opportunity for someone with a great imagination to reimagine a concept, as John Carpenter did with his widely loved The Thing. Imagine an Evil Dead without an Evil Dead 2, a Mad Max without a Road Warrior, the Terminator without a Terminator 2. And I won't even go down the path of superhero extravaganzas in the Marvel Universe. There are purges and saws and conjurings and a full buffet of extra helpings of your favorites at your fingertips. My own career started with lots of movies with numbers in their titles, from Writing the Fly 2, which probably was not a necessary addition to anyone's lists, Critters 2, Psycho 4, and even the aforementioned The Shining. All we need is a reason to remake or sequelize, a story worth telling. In the case of The Shining, it was well known that King was no fan of the Kubrick film. Don't get me wrong, it's a great Kubrick film, but it's not a great adaptation of the book. Nor does it need to be. That's why King wanted to try and tell the book and why we were able to do our version more faithfully. Which brings us to our guest, Chuck Russell. He and Frank Darabont revived Freddy Krueger with A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors and took the aging, frankly, kind of threadbare 50s classic The Blob and made it new and exciting. We're going to dig into Chuck's take on those films and a lot more after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer.
1: Now, here's your host, Mick Garris.
0: So, Chuck, where did it start for you? You're, you're from Chicago, right? Correct. So, where did your in, uh, interest in film uh, and cinema
1: begin? I loved, I always loved movies, television when I was little, where I caught Ray Harryhausen's Sinbad, And for some reason in my little mind, um, I realized that was somebody's job. Mm. I don't know why it was that film in particular, but I realized I loved monsters. I love imaginative films. I've always had a very active imagination and a very bizarre dream life. (laughs) <laughs> which oh, well, that has led, that, that serves you well. No, it's tr- it really has led to it's a lot of my films. I've always been a little bit of an insomniac, even as a kid, uh, including sleepwalking and repetitive dreams. So uh, dreams have always wow, been an really? interest. Oh, yeah. Dreams have always been an interest to me. So it started there, and I slowly... You know,
0: you and John Landis started with um,
1: Seventh Voyage of Sinbad.
0: That, that was the movie it, uh, that
1: inspired him. I think I've heard that, and, and I'm yeah. not surprised because at the time, it was mind-blowing. I mean I just never seen anything like that and, and this
0: it, was television for you yeah, you were too yeah, young to yeah, have seen yes, them correct
1: and it and it was I couldn't believe my eyes you know yeah. with Ray Harryhausen's magic which I'm still a huge fan of now knowing more about what it takes to do stop motion mm-hmm. uh so I just it, it hit everything I ever wanted in a movie and I and I for some reason it just said in my little head somebody makes those things <sighs> my dad goes on a train to downtown Chicago every day to work in the advertising business, but that's something else again.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Uh, and it took me a while um, I- through high school and University of Illinois in Champaign, in southern Illinois. Uh, I wasn't really around other people where that was a, a career option. It's like right. saying you want to be an astronaut. <laughs> so it's it, kind of, it started with, well, that's certainly interesting and I can make my little films. I began to do a lot of theater, and Chicago's well known for having good theater and a good right. theater area. So, so you approach theater as a writer, as an actor, as a director? Well, as both, Well, as a, as, a, as a writer and as an actor. Mm-hmm. I think we all get, if you really want to go into my personal history, I think we all get one or two teachers that are a blessing that really, really inspire us. And there was a guy named Bob Oletta, who was still teaching at NYU, I think, Wow, who was a real legit playwright. And I'm not the only guy he inspired out of the small class at University of Illinois, Several of us took his class even when we couldn't get credit. We repeated that class because he taught us about playwriting, about how to just follow your instincts, break all the rules, and please just don't bore him. That was his Mm -hmm. only rule. (laughs) That's a pretty good rule. It's a fabulous rule. Um, And uh, I approached it as an actor and as a writer and and as a director of of these one-act plays. They were pretty humble, but they were actually very inventive. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I realized... I felt more legit as a writer-director. I felt, for me personally, acting wasn't my future, and I really hadn't considered it as a big option either.
0: Right. But, but I was, was, I, was a, I was, I was. A,
1: yeah. It was fun. I was a great actor at University of Illinois. And I did, <laughs> yeah. I did one feature film actually, playing a rookie cop who got shot in a low-budget uh, film. Yeah. In, what was it called? I, it Was called Shot. There's. <laughs> some, it's actually called Shot. There's and still, you were the title victim. I, I was, I was the young guy who the Clint Eastwood copying hero was uh, taking revenge on. And I did a stair fall, and oh. I did it so well it scared the shit out of the cameraman who thought I actually fell down the stairs, but I, I'd been working on it for months getting that right, so, so I, there could have been stunts in your future you know I, I, like <laughs> I actually that went on from when I first came really here. I worked as the guy who gets the coffee for stunts unlimited wow. and they would be short a man or two sometimes
0: so they were one of the big organizations of stunt players who would casting the, these things these guys showed. were
1: legends right. And maybe yes. maybe there's of filming me someday about that group of guys at that time. That was the Wild West in the 80s. Ah,
0: of you could outdo Hooper. It, yeah.
1: it, it kind of, it it, it, that was the real deal. Yeah. Where they, a couple of them lived in a cabin together, had a ranch together, and I'd go up there and do whatever needed to be done. And they tried to get me to do some stunt work. Right. And I actually, I know these are pretty long stories, but th- go I, for it. I actually uh, was called in on a car day. Someone else didn't show up for the passenger seat and it was a, it was one of those things where the bad guys drive straight at the cop car, uh, roadblock, right? And I said, "Okay, I can do this. I'll do this for these guys." And I was 20 or something and yeah. and I, I end up in the passenger seat and it turns out I'm the bullseye. My oh, doors great. the and the, ga- the gag is the bad guys drive straight at the cops trying to play chicken with them and they turn at the very last minute and try just to kiss the door. Uh-huh. So I thought this I said, "I'm doing this because I gave my word I would do it, but I'm never gonna <laughs> do this part again. I'm yeah, gonna be the pro- Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna be the production guy. Yeah. Then it began to rain. Oh, <laughs> and no, I said, well, surely uh, they'll uh, call uh. it off, and they said, no, no, we can still make it happen. Oh. So the the conclusion is, I survived, but I, I never. That was my last seduction into the stunt business. <laughs> okay. It wasn't an intentional thing, but it was part of the part of the job to be kind of a utility guy.
0: Right. What do you remember? What movie that was for? Gosh.
1: It might have been Cannonball, it might have been the original Cannonball run. This wow. was right around okay. Cannonball run, and, and the first time I ever did this was on the original uh, Death Race 2000. Oh, and really? And I, I got to run out and direct second unit, because I was ambitious.
0: That's amazing, and, and Landis
1: was also a stunt guy in Death Race 2000. Was he? Because yeah. I didn't know John then, i would yeah. met him since. It's interesting how you're uh, your... Well, that was the pla- that was, people ask me now, young people ask me how you begin as a filmmaker, and there's a whole different... Set of ways to begin, and it starts with yeah. the, with your your cell phone you camera nowadays. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in those days, it was like okay, make very little money and be in dangerous <laughs> because it <laughs> yeah. was they were a little loose around the edges in those days. So you you entered through the Corman door through the Corman door. Correct. Yeah, correct. I, I had some very very interesting experiences. <laughs> like tell me one. Well, th- things would be handed to me where they had to get it done, which was Roger's way, any way you could.
0: And somebody needed to do it. Somebody
1: needed to do it. (laughs) And I was the one who talked. There was an old folks home scene. Uh, Once again, I guess the other sequence, I got my karma back. There was an old folks scene where they had to line up old folks in the road. And the gag was that oh, the yeah, race cars yeah. were going to hit them. I was the guy with the real old folks going. <laughs> oh, Don't worry, it, was, I, I, it wasn't actually dangerous. But the <laughs> yes. whole concept of lining old folks up in this desert road in wheelchairs—I thought, you know, it, could this, there's got to be something wrong about this. But <laughs> it was, it was, it was, re, it was safe. You know, yes, I suppose it, anything can happen on any film, but yeah. it was, it was perfectly safe. But that's one of the first times I had to ask myself: This is really circus. This, this is like the modern equivalent of running away to join the circus is the film business.
0: Wow. So you worked both for um, Corman and Crown International. Correct. Another one at the Correct. time that was in the low budget world. Uh, you were like a line producer on the, on the hearse. Correct. George, George Bowers was a very popular uh,
1: editor. Bowers, brilliant time. guy.
0: Yeah. African-American right. director, one of the very few at this time. So tell me about how that came together
1: i I was roped in because i w- I became the go to guy. Uh, very few people knew that I had a creative background and was writing scripts at that time so you were doing I was doing and I, business I, did, work. I did whatever i could i was yeah. I was the line producer and production manager, and um George was just Mr. Cool, what a cool yeah, guy yeah. really, really wonderful guy and I was happy, really happy to work with him, but you know it was from there and we had a wonderful cast it was uh, trish Vanderveer? trish vandeveer. And we had the great character actor from uh, Orson Welles' uh, picture. Where's that cast list? Oh. No, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. The, we'll oh, man. Look that up. God, i don't think it was of his name in a second. I asked him how they did the drunk scene. Uh, in Citizen Kane, right. it's one of the best drunk scenes there is. So here's a tip. Okay. okay? Different actors approach drunk, drunk scenes different ways.
0: Yes. Some okay? do it uh, method. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> yeah. they, well, that only goes for an hour or two. Uh, yeah. Over, a couple or, of takes. Or you're a wreck, be, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they had an incredible... Was this Joseph Cotton? Yes, it was Joseph Cotton, who was in the hearse. And he was very impressed that I asked this question, by the way, at the time. No one else was asking him these things. Brilliant actor. And uh, he said, him and Orson had decided, okay, there's these different ways to do it, but it's an all-day scene. The scene goes from anger to laughter. So it has quite a range. And it blew my mind because it was so real. I couldn't figure out how they did it as a young actor at the time. And uh, he said they decided to get no sleep the night before. Ah. And by having a complete sleep deprivation, they were able to access that for the giddiness of that scene.
0: Interesting. So, yeah,
1: I was already getting all these fantastic experiences getting to know people who had been in, in these really historic films that happened to be part of, at that time, of the hearse. So that was, you know, a big adventure for me at the time.
0: So the 70s were a a great time of change in the film business and in the independent film business, and that seems to be when your door opened to opportunity. Correct. So you must have learned a lot from people like Corman and Paul Bartell and Bowers and and, and all of that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it was was an incredible education of surviving, doing and surviving somehow and getting these scripts done. And that's... I was really grateful to Paul because we we fell two pages behind, and Roger did do what he this amazing things he's known for. He came and he took the script and ripped some pages out, and he said, "Now you're on schedule." <laughs> that's that's a real yeah, thing, and that we <laughs> thought that was legend. No, no, print the legend. That shit happened, and I told Paul, "Look, there's an extra camera. I can go put a camera inside the car with these characters and get those lines." I said, I'll get those lines. And you've got the stunt guys in second units. We can pick up some of the shots we missed. And to my amazement and something that really encouraged me, they used like every bit of film, every foot of film I, I shot. Wow. And and because they needed cutaways of those comedic characters inside the cars. And we right. both kind of knew it, but Paul was not being allowed to shoot. So I ran away. Wow. Well, he did his first unit. And he tr- he trusted me, and I guess he had nothing to lose that day, but it it was a lot of fun and kept me really focused on my opportunity to direct, but I kept my mouth shut about it. I didn't right. want to be one more right. guy saying, you know, I really want to direct. Yes. Well, I'm getting your coffee. You know? Right,
0: like having, being the asshole with the script in your back pocket well, everywhere you go, yeah?
1: I I encourage everybody's aspirations, but there's a practical yeah. side. And I've had this happen with the absolute best person coming out of the best film uh, school, uh young people come into my set and you know what they're really antsy to do is tell me of a shot they thought of that I should do. And, right. and but they actually have a job. Right. That, you know, right. that they're yes. not doing yes. while they're imagining, yeah, that shot may, maybe it will work, but I have my storyboards. Thanks. Uh,
0: you know. uh, and excuse me, there's a light that's yes, moving. Yes. Yes. yes.
1: So but yeah. that's an absolutely respectable approach to filmmaking. Just start directing your own stuff. And, and again we go back to what are your financial sources or what are your resources starting now? Again, even thanks to Soderbergh's experiments, starting now with good work on your own cell phone.
0: I love Unsane. I yeah, think that great. is such a good Terrific. movie. And it looks great. And the way it was shot, I think, adds to the the cinematic value of the film, of the storytelling being made. It was
1: a really, really medium is the message kind of a film. Yeah. And I love the suspense. I love what he did with it. And it just... I think that's a. when people ask me how to start, that's one way to start. You can also yeah. do what I did, which is work your way up. I kept writing. The specifics of how it worked for me is I kept writing, and I, had a, I was handy with the visual effects, so I kind of segued into assistant directing and production managing into storyboarding and writing on uh, Dreamscape,
0: Right. So you drew early on. I was always drawing. So you were
1: drawing as a kid, and that was uh, a actually. I thought at had. one point I thought I would be a cartoonist. Me too. You know, did you? Same thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it didn't. Isn't someone wonderful? Was it Kubrick who's also doing that, or was yep. it uh, yep.
0: Joe Dante also? Does, really? Uh, does his own. I guess, cartoon yeah. story. I, I used
1: things. to do full-on caricatures, and if, I'm, yeah. if I say so, I've seen some of the old ones rather well at the time. Yeah. But I. I I was thinking, can I be a comic book guy? I didn't really think I'd make it in film.
0: I wanted to make animated cartoons when I was a kid. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I I did that, and, and you burn yourself out trying to make the sales match, and you realize, well, I if I only have sure Disney that. staff, I could do this. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> what was your first paying movie job?
1: Uh... And Corman counts. It, it, it was, <laughs> no, listen. I got to tell you, it, it, it almost sounds like I was the Forrest Gump of the '70s and '80s because I was everywhere, man. Yeah, I had I on Death Race in particular. I walked in the door. If I ever filmed my own bio, the first shot's dynamite because I walked in the Corman door to interview. Someone said, "Hey, kid, come here," and they put David Carradine's Frankenstein mask on my face. Oh, so I literally had a camera point of view through these two eye holes in this mask as they walked me around. Wow, entered, didn't really introduce me because they didn't give a shit about right. me. But yeah. they were introducing this mask to everybody right. on my face. That's and correct. it was like this weird tour of Corman's shop on. It was, I guess, it was on Sunset by Tower Records at that
0: time. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the New World. Yeah, uh, offices so that's
1: right that, yeah. that's that's pretty big. That's yeah, pretty big. that's you so. Know.
0: That was that's a great first
1: job. It, yeah, it was really for me. I was in heaven. It's like a dozen first jobs in. One. And I was I was particularly assigned to David Carradine because him and I got along well, hmm. and he was going through a very very eccentric phase at the time. Oh boy, A <laughs> uh, wonderful guy. But I understood I understood him and could kind of keep him like a little helium balloon floating onto the set at the right time.
0: The Carradine whisperer, a little
1: bit. Yeah, yeah that was it. Okay. That was it. And Sly Stallone was there who. Right. I knew was going to be the biggest star and was telling people that wow. and in a way he gave me a, a little bit of my confidence in going with people that are new that I find very very charismatic. Right. And I thought Sly just stood out as a guy and knew what he was doing, S- super focused, charismatic actor. And uh he actually was working on the script of Rocky at that time and mentioned it to me. Wow. So when I say I'm the force, I'm not kidding. I mean, when I look back over some of the places I've been in those days, I know the feeling. Yeah, you've been. We, we, you know, you become a human time machine.
0: Yes, exactly, you know? exactly. So, when was the decision made that directing is what you wanted to focus upon?
1: I knew that. I didn't know if the opportunity was going to present itself.
0: So you knew that rather than so acting was. I mean, uh,
1: writing was a means to an end. As a writing director? was a means to the end, but it a, was but a, a legit passion. I'd been writing and directing one act plays.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought I could probably this into the film, but I never got the money or my discipline and focus together to do a great short film, which is the classic way at the time. But even then, I didn't know a lot of people that had gotten in on short films. Right. So I just figured, you know, I'm going to get in here and do the absolute best job of whatever they give me and keep my mouth shut. I, I had, believe it or not, 250 bucks and I got a job sweeping stages as my real first job. Right. I don't know if that counts as being in the film that business. That counts. All right. That counts. That, that was yeah. it. Then the what I considered my first job was uh, was on Death Race.
0: You know, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a good entree. <laughs> now, this is quite a jump to a first directorial feature job with Dream Warriors. Um, how did that come about? Because it kind of revived Freddy Krueger. The first film was successful. It wasn't a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And then the second film was okay. Not particularly well received, but it did well. But the third one turned it into something entirely
1: new. I um, So this was, you know, it's just about focusing on, on what your passion is. I thought I was going to get it. I got the rights to The Blob. That's how I was going to get my directing gig, and so I So that was going to be your. Dip- that was going to be my first mm-hmm. thing, and I, I I corralled Frank, who we were already experimenting writing as a team.
0: And this is Frank Darabont. Frank Darabont, who, yeah. with
1: whom we've both worked. <laughs> of course, and I love Frank. He's yeah. like a brother. The the. Well, you've worked a lot together. What yeah. the biggest moment for me and Frank is when I got us a gig doing a script for Universal, and we tended to go to cabins and just c- crash and get a draft done. Right. And we were in Park City writing, and he said, oh, there's a script I want you to read. He said, I got the rights to a Stephen King novella, but I got the rights for a dollar because he was had a relationship with Stephen from a, being a student. Woman he league. said, I'm, gonna loo- I'm about to lose the rights, but I'd like you to read the script. And it was Shawshank Redemption. Right. And I said, you know, what are you doing here with me in a cabin... Yeah, in he'd, actually, City. he'd already done the short the, the, of Woman in the Room. He'd right? done the yeah. short. I think he'd done a low-budget feature, I'm not sure. But right. this was going to be his first big directorial. Yes, Joshua. and And I just said, this is this script is not only a good script, it's the best script I'd ever read in my life. I'd never read the novella, so I had no idea what the material was going to be. But that script is is as good, or I don't know. To oh, yeah, me, it was better than the that, movie. I was yeah. It blew my mind. Yeah. I just said, Frank, this is the best script I've ever read. <laughs> and he was getting he was going through his uh challenges where people were trying to sort of buy the rights in the script. Right. And I said, just stick stick to your guns, man. Yeah. Do, you're gonna direct this. You were born to direct it. I mean, that was a big
0: I'm glad big, you talked him into that.
1: Well I didn't I was just a <laughs> I mean sticking I, with it. I was yes. just trying not to be a roadblock. I, yeah. I said, you go now and do this now. Don't let somebody if, else fuck up your yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't yeah. don't uh you lose the rights or whatever it is if you yeah. – some whatever the deal was with Stephen. But boy. Well, it's
0: a dollar to get the rights and then when you
1: make your deal, money yes. paid yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. No, no. I'm, yeah. Sure he, yeah. I'm sure it was a very – No, fair, no. I mean yeah. it's – Fair it's, deal to everybody. But the point is yeah. Frank didn't have an angle except for his own passion, which yeah. is how he forged that relationship with Stephen as a student doing a short film off yeah. a small Stephen King story. There's such a, there's no such thing now, but at that <laughs> yes. time there yeah, was yeah. such a thing. Yeah. Uh, and you will find a way if you're willing to do that work. In, in this case, Frank and I both love writing. For people that don't love writing, don't become a writer if you don't <laughs> love writing. That's for sure. You know, it, but yeah. you, that is not the only way to do it. But for those that do like writing, it's a wonderful superpower as a filmmaker. Whether you just write your own stuff or whether you're there knowledgeable about writing from having done the discipline.
0: Right. I mean, that was my path as well, was
1: as a writer and then as a director after that. And there's some connection between cartoons, writing, and filmmaking. Yeah. And they all somehow yeah. magically come together.
0: And yet everybody seems to have a different path. You know, the generalities may be similar, but the specifics are oh so different,
1: you know? I didn't truly answer your question. Dreamscape was well thought of. Mm-hmm. And I was running around on the visual effects at the time because I had a lot of ideas and some of them... The world wasn't. The, the, the practical <laughs> effects makers weren't quite, oh, quite God, able. Yes. But I was a big cheerleader for those guys and gals, whether it was the, the visual effects at the time or what physical effects we were doing. I right, still so still,
0: you you did optical effects yourself? I was very
1: close. I, I didn't do them by myself. But I, right. the team, that, that I pulled in the best... Uh, gunslingers like you'd be a supervisor or something Yeah I would I would I wasn't so worried about titles I was sort of the assistant director co-writer and mm-hmm. I think I was some kind of line producer credit I was helping Joe Rubin, our director any way I could
0: right. who had done the stepfather and who was yes. who really had done some really
1: wonderful work Well we both knew we, we did her. Dreamscape together the, right? This was this was Dreamscape I'm talking Oh okay about, I'm okay. talking about Dreamscape yeah doing dreamscape got me the Elm street three Ah, and I, I went into them. They weren't sure they were going to make Elm street three, but they were, they had been starting a relationship with me based on the fact that I could get good cheap effects done Mm -hmm. somehow. That was some part of the association at the time with Bob Shea and Sarah Risher. And, uh, for I whom I did my first feature as well yes. as a director. Yes, <laughs> they
0: the, were great at giving opportunities. They
1: right through Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, one thing about that group, man, they had a little bit the Corman spirit with maybe less cruel business practices, <laughs> yes. slightly less cruel, a little more professional, a little more professional. Yeah. But the they. Would do it, and they did it for me again by allowing me to make the mask a comedy. It was originally supposed to be a horror film,
0: which it really because that is also groundbreaking. Well, let's let's go through Dream Warrior a little more before we get into that. Well, all right. So
1: th- yeah. this is this is the thing. I wish I I wish I could find this, but I did one big page of a storyboard of a Freddy gag, hmm. and we, I didn't use it in the film, but it was a pretty good oh. it was a pretty good fe- Freddy gra- Freddy gag, and I put my whole heart in my cartooning storyboarding into it. And uh, they were, it was a tipping point for them on making three because they had a mixed experience on two. Uh, By the way, I disagree a little with something you said because to me the first Elm Street was so iconic
0: well, iconic, it. yes, but, I mean, the box office was good, The first, but it, was it wasn't groundbreaking, but the, f- the film itself was spectacular.
1: Yeah, it, was, yeah. it, it just blew my mind. Yeah, nobody had done a movie like that yeah. before. And my, my greatest disappointment was I didn't get to collaborate as much as I would have liked to with Wes himself, right. which I thought was going to be part of the gig. But yeah. that, there, there was a separation at the time, between uh, Wes and New Line, which was later mended on yes. Elm Street, he returned to. Yes. But this is the the real life of uh, making films. Is you know, it makes strange bedfellows, I guess, sometimes. Yeah. But I had to, I had to quickly tough enough about well, I, you know. I, I, was, I invited him to my screening. He, he came there and was very gracious. On, on
0: Wes was there. a wonderful guy and a yeah. really creative guy. He and Bob Shea and Roger Corman have all been on the show, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, um, you know, really terrific people who have a passion for film.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that that is something they all share. And there's a, obviously a mercenary side to this business. Yes. Yeah. But even Corman, who's most famous for kind of his mercenary side, was an amazing film lover and loved giving people opportunities. Yeah. What, you know, and it, it's maybe I picked up a little bit from them, but the most fun I have is with new actors. When I right. see an actor I believe in, and this happened in particular with Jim and Cameron on the mask, even Jim was not desired at that time. It was before Ace Ventura.
0: Right, right.
1: And they didn't want him for a lead. Everybody wanted to know another genius with Robin Williams. We can get Robin Williams, but you c- we couldn't get Robin Williams for what was actually a low-budget film.
0: He was one of the biggest movie stars at the
1: yeah, time. Yeah, at that time, yeah, no. Yeah. And then the irony, well... We'll get back to you know, that. You know, <laughs> yeah, whatever. But uh, anyway, that storyboard helped me tip them into Dream Warriors and Wes's original script and my suggestion that we take the whole thing further into wilder, bigger uh, dream imagery with some dark comedy
0: yeah which was definitely a pivot for the series and true it was more expansive, it was not as contained, and it allowed the imagination to go wild and so that came from your influence
1: it didn't thank you and with my help of frank on the, on and script, Frank well, you, well, you know. and
0: Darabont together and a Batman and Robin
1: team here. We, and we, I won't say who's who <laughs> we had we had eleven days to do a complete uh, Draft of my wow. version of the film, and I had 103 temperatures. So I, we went to a, oh. again. We went to a cabin in Big Bear, poor Frank yeah. suffered my style of just crashing and writing like maniacs. Yeah, and he saved me with some soup, and it. And we got it done. And some of that a stuff, chicken soup, yeah, the inspiration. And he almost yeah. left when I wrote on my side of the cabin. When I wrote, he's the he's the man, bastard son of a thousand maniacs line yes. for the nun. Oh, that's your line. Oh, yeah. And Frank was like, "You is, can't say that. You can't say that." And I'm like, "It's the big wacky. When in doubt, don't bore." That is a perfect line. <laughs> How would anyone not? Well, want at, to the use time, that. at the time, at the time, in the environment, it was, it yeah. was, it, it was throwing the, the for the swish. Right. <laughs> it was like, you know, oh, you hit it. You yeah. know, you know my, my feeling on that project and certain other projects I've done is is you've got to take a risk for the audience. Because I know myself, when when a filmmaker or or performer takes a risk, that's when they most capture me. Yeah. So I guess that there's the, you know risk reward, and there's always the chance of failure. But then, you know in film you have the editing room. So if you if you can take your time as you know on set appropriately, you can try. I didn't think it was experimental. Frank just thought. Yeah. You can't say that <laughs> at oh, the time. Really? You can't funny. have a nun say that. And it's <laughs> the
0: classic line of the film. It's probably the most remembered
1: line m- of that movie. M- maybe. But if it makes me laugh when I think of it, usually yeah. I lean towards it because I believe in being true to your story in a way true to the audience. You don't want to do something farcical. Mm-hmm. But if there's character-based comedy or dark humor in the case of the Elm Street, I think Freddie had a potential for graveyard humor. And then they, then they went too far. So yeah. t- 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 there was too many... With too, too many one-liners. Too many one-liners. Yeah. It finally became like almost... Arnold Schwarzenegger is now doing Freddy. It's, it's like right. so many one-liners, it's too many one-liners.
0: Even in Sleepwalkers, it tended to that, and I kind of cut a few of those by uh, the time it hit the screen because you don't want your antagonist to become a joke.
1: Well, know? that's it. it it's... Yeah. Is this um, sadistic humor that would naturally come from a, from a, an antagonist? Right. Or... Is art we the writers and filmmakers having having way too much fun? Yeah, yeah you yeah, know, yeah. they wanted to get a, a wink and a nod, and that detracts from the suspense. Yes, because in horror horror comedy, which I've done a couple of times, is a very fine line. You know, you you. you uh, so I allow myself character based humor, and 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 gallows humor or foxhole humor. Right. I've been in one or two situations in those stunt days. Once I was stuck on a cliff face in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, with another guy, both Jesus. on ropes. I had shot. Of high fall, and we climbed. I, I actually left the cameraman up there and went down to spot him in the river because oh, we had nobody spotting him in case oh, he got knocked out. Oh, so we had to climb back up together when the gag was done, and the cliff fell away, and we were actually hanging on by the ropes, oh, waiting for the shit. guys, and we were making some badass jokes because <laughs> that's what <laughs> you what, what grown men when you have to start calling for help. You start by making sure your voice is low. <laughs> oh, help, can you hear us? You can't see us, but we're stuck then. Uh, and I think that that was actually a life-threatening situation. It was legit in, in the Snake River in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. What was the movie? This was Sun Classics.
0: Oh, okay. Another, yeah. uh, well, yeah. uh, Salt Lake City,
1: yeah, Utah-based. Salt Lake City-based. City uh, and uh, but and it was a Last of the Mohicans yeah. uh, TV, a very low-budget TV uh-huh. show for Last of the Mohicans, associated with the Grizzly Adams team. Right. And I just... They were
0: very family-oriented. Yes, they were. Yes. Yes, they were. They were
1: Mormons. Yes, they were, talk, but there, was, yeah. there were some wild ones, what we call Jack Mormons. Right. And that's not an awful term, but it's, it's meant right. a, a big living Mormon.
0: Well, they did One Dark Night with Tom McLaughlin as well, yes. which was a flat-out horror movie.
1: Yes. So this was a, a really cool project, but once again, I was given the really hard stuff to do. And yeah, yeah. Chuck, go go shoot this high fall. <laughs> Where's the extra stuntman? What stuntman? He's going to fall in the river. I go, what if he hits the wrong way? Who's going to be down there for him? And the result was two guys hanging from a cliff face. Wow. Literally, I wasn't tied off. We were hanging on by our upper body strength. Oh, my we God. We wasn't repelling gear. It sounds like a tall story, but this is a true story. I believe he, it. He when the climb the the rope to catch us came down he left me behind <laughs> this guy I thought he's the stuntman. Okay. man he'll tie me off you know you looked out for him yeah kind of <laughs> well, well that's what you get anyway
0: so back to dream warriors what was your reaction the first time you saw the film with an audience
1: the first time I saw the film with an audience was included Wes Craven and Toby Hooper ah, so i was great. like it was at the Writers Guild, I'll never forget it, because I was beside myself. So was this a cast and crew screen? It was, it was kind of friends, family, cast, crew. Right. There was a couple hundred people, so it was a right. small-ish theater, but a theater it was not a screening room. Right. And people were hooting. They were hooting and hollering, and I kept trying to peek five rows up to see what <laughs> Wes and Toby were. Yeah. Wes had his arms crossed. I go, God knows what he's thinking, right? Yes. Uh, but, uh... It was clearly, the scares worked, some of the comedy worked. I was I was really tough on myself on that film. My cast, there's a little documentary, the cast will tell you I was tough on them. <laughs> and I, I'm like, well, I was nice to them, but it was I wanted fear. Yeah. And if I didn't get it, I found a way to create it. No, it didn't hurt anybody, but I mean, right. I, I feel like part of our job, we're sort of a host, we're directing a film, you want to support the actors, on the other hand, I'm the... I'm the first one telling what I call campfire stories. Mm -hmm. Don't forget where we are. This is what's happened. And this was what could happen to you. And this is what he wants to do to you. I mean, I'll I'll help them get in that space so they're not doing it alone. With a young young cast. With a young cast.
0: You're also the only one who has an overview. Mm -hmm. An actor. Thinks about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. A cameraman thinks about what he's doing.
1: Mm-hmm. A
0: stunt coordinator thinks about what he's doing. You have to participate in every element of the structure of the movie
1: and the. That's true, and, I, and I'm really thankful. I had a year or so just with the stunters because I learned the craft. Right, I, and, and I, my summer job was a lifeguard, so I've always, uh. you know, in my high school and college days. So I, I come from a position of safety, and I'm usually on the set piece. Saying you're here, right, you know, right. uh, you know, to, to make sure it actually is safe, to give them confidence, and so I know how you get in and out of these things.
0: So you needed the confidence in your own abilities on your first feature film to provide Absolutely. The confidence for and, them. And I did. So have, you
1: felt you were ready. I still do that on my action films. I just did it in Thailand with a, what we call a tusker, this big bull elephant that wasn't necessarily wow. safe that I spent two months with before This is The filming. Seven Sins? No, this is, okay. this, is, this is what I just finished. It's called Jungly. Oh, okay. It's a really, really cool movie. I just shot it in India and Thailand. Wow. And it's an action movie with a friggin' rockin' new action star, uh, Vidya Jamal, who, who's known in India and rising. I'll show you some stills. This guy, yeah, this guy will blow, this blow your mind. He's wow. the real thing, martial artist, super charming leading man. And the story, they, they got me to do it because it's an anti-poaching adventure. Mm -hmm. It's a hero who, you know, from his elephant is in danger of getting killed by poachers that he grew up with as a kid. So he returns to his father's elephant preserve. So I got to work with a herd of eight elephants in in a beautiful place in Thailand where the elephants, it was an elephant sanctuary. The number one thing I researched is how well the elephants would be treated. So at the end of the day, I had a close personal relationship with my two lead elephants that I wrote like Uh. characters in the film. So it's oh,
0: fantastic what opportunities we have as filmmakers to go to different places in the world and tell stories and dream awake
1: This from people. this blew my mind because yeah. I did when they called me about helping develop the screenplay I was straight up out of uh India the times of India which is a big media company there mm-hmm. and I was completely enamored like let's go for yeah. once I can have an Indian actor do an Indian story and not have a western actor necessarily save you know the, the jungle, right. you know, so it was, right. it was a mixed uh, Indian and Thai cast.
0: Well, and how was the production experience?
1: Most amazing experience. You, you know I'm a big animal lover if you watch my films. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. The Dog in the Mask and the, the Camel and the Scorpion King. Yeah. And it actually, I can, one of the reasons I did it, so I have, my, this is my intention. When the film's done, audiences will be the judge of it. But I think a fun action film the Pulls on Your Heartstrings for the Elephants Yeah, uh, will do more than a documentary on the subject. Because Absolutely. if people are seeing a documentary anti-poaching, they're already they've already, Yeah, Anti- you're Poaching.
0: taking sides. Yeah.
1: I'm kind of reaching out to the international audiences that we can reach with these films and saying, you know, what if it was your elephant? That's the yeah. beauty of this particular story. He grew up as a boy. He hasn't seen that bull Tusker in years. And uh, the poachers spot him with a drone, which is how they work now. Mm-hmm. And I had to find the elephant with the biggest tusks li- living and available to us in Thailand. Wow. And that was really, that itself was awesome. Wow. And then I had to make sure it was safe for my cast to be around. <laughs>
0: I'm, I think audiences would be surprised. I know that personally the reaction I've seen has been surprised at how sensitive horror filmmakers are. So many of them, including <laughs> myself, are vegans, animal lovers, who, you know, you see a well, real person lying Why, yeah. covered in blood. And, 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 you know, it's like they're the ones
1: who get woozy. You know? Supposedly Hitchcock was the most scared person. Very
0: squeamish, sense. scared guy, yeah.
1: That's know. an interesting observation. I, I, I know it's true of you you know, and that you're a sensitive, thoughtful guy,
0: you know, but so many of the people who are vegan, who are vegetarian because of their love for animals, the way they treat people. And, you know, I think, you know, one theory is that we have our nightmares as our job. You know, we dream awake, we do that and we're unrepressed. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't have the expression of, of fears and violence that, that people who may not be so easily rid. of Well, that's of those the thing. Nightmares.
1: Including this last film I did, which was had a certain element of danger that I was responsible, and and thank God I got through everything with not an elephant or a person harmed. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that'll be the last uh, line <laughs> well, at the end. Honestly, Titles, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, if we're busy uh, manifesting uh, the the cathartic experience of facing fear. So that's, to yeah. me, what horror is about. So yeah. maybe it's also generational because I'm not... I'm a fan of movies. So I'm right. every time I see a movie that surprises me, I'm thankful. Like, that's awesome, right? Yeah. But there is sort of this almost... I don't even know if millennial is the right term, but there's, there's, a, there's cycles of filmmaking where it's all about this nihilistic kind of... Well, the bad yeah. guy wins, of course. And to me, that's... Uh, while I think that's a super valid and entertaining mm-hmm. kind of film in its own way, um, I assume in my own work that thrillers and horror are my challenge as a storyteller to say, what if you were up against this set? Right. How does the hero earn his way out? How right. can, and, and, and to why I think of my, I only, I, I've never, I've been offered s- several slasher films over the years, but I always want to do something that's supernatural. Mm-hmm. So even if there's violent, elements for me they're imaginative and it's all in a similar way um challenging uh the underdog that we all are the everyman and in the case of, Sh- of shawnee smith and the blob you know yes. my first female empowerment film ahead of the curve uh <laughs> i love with, shawnee. Her, with her ak-47 yes. shooting away shouting come on <laughs> i have her shooting in the stand too are you? <laughs> she's amazing she's yes. so cool she's the the uh And this is true of your films, too. Absolutely, that I prefer myself rooting interest. So you'll see, you'll tend to see that in my films that, ultimately, even at great cost, the good will prevail in some way.
0: Did you choose the horror thriller genre? Is that something that was of particular interest to you? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, And I'm. Looking at a couple of things I'm doing right now are, mm-hmm. are supernatural thrillers, uh-huh. so I'm, I may return to that depending on how these projects develop. We'll yeah. see, you know. But I I love the genre. I have new I new ideas for me about it. But yeah, i just starting with Ray Harryhausen. Sci-fi and and horror were the things I was most interested in as I started, and I also thought it was a little bit of a fastball for me as a young man because I just was always. It was easy for me to visualize some way to make an illusion work, and uh-huh. I got a lot of satisfaction out of the basic illusions. Did you do magic as a kid? I did. Uh, I did. <laughs> there you go. I, I wasn't. I didn't have a lot of discipline. So
0: hey, listen, Orson Welles did it too. He
1: was well. He was good. I never. Yeah, I never bothered to go that far. But I yeah. still think. Uh, I still prefer to lean on physical effects. I yes. think we've gone. It's great when you're world building. So mm-hmm. CGI is fantastic, but. I think when we're telling contemporary stories or even period stories, I think physical effects, I think it's CGI's best enhancing physical effects. Right. That th- and that, I find, scares me on some gut level mm. more than a full CGI thing. The creatures are getting so organic and so weighty, they're getting better and better.
0: Yes, yes.
1: But I think if there's not a physical element... It can detract a little. And I, well,
0: also for the actors. I mean, we are identifying with the actors on screen. And if the actors are, are reacting to a green tennis ball on a pole, it's not quite
1: the same thing. I lost my voice on those sets where I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> literally get a reaction because it's this huge fluorescent green we used to use. Right. And, and people running around with tennis balls, you know, you, you really get that look on actors' uh, faces. There's a Jude Law movie that I remember that was it was it's a lesser known one because the performances were great which is very unusual for Jude Law but a Paltrow and it was a retro total green screen thing with a a, hmm. a brilliant filmmaker but he didn't get the performances you could just see they're, they're unfocused so I've always yeah. protected myself against that in my casts.
0: Well, one thing that is has been a part of your films but was never the focal part of your films is comedy until The Mask. I mean, how was that a, a different experience, doing something where the raison d'etre was to get
1: laughs first? I'd done that in theater quite uh-huh. a bit. So I had been as, a, as an actor, and I'd done a bunch of Neil Simon when I... I this uh-huh. is weird because it is when I was in my teens and early 20s, but I right. did do it, and the largest one was like an audience of 2,000 people at the University wow. of Illinois. their larger theater. So I get it. Comedy's never easy, as they say, but it is yeah. fun. So I don't, I don't quite agree with that, you know.
0: Well, you also have so a strong good. story at the center, yeah, too. Yeah. Well, that's and,
1: it. And I, I got to work with Harold Ramis on Back to School. That was the first comedy I did was I produced Back to School. Right. But once again, I was very active. I did some ghost writing. I got Harold Ramis to come in. Our, my job was to come in for director Alan Metter and get Rodney back into the show, get a new script. They would mm-hmm. had a lot of problems. The beauty of that. We got Robert Downey Jr. and we got wow. Sam Kettison. Wow. Sally, Sally Kellerman. We got this incredible cast, and I was a kid, but I had—I was the sole producer. It was amazing. Wow! And it's Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. You yeah. So we were—we were in there. We were—we—we we found Sam Kennison just going to comedy stores. So I'd been doing comedy things. Mm-hmm. I'm not literally a comedian, but you know, I've been yeah. one. I've performed <laughs> one, as they say. You know, I think stand-up. I played is, one on TV. The bravest people in the world are stand-up comedians and boxers. They're the two right. people that have to get there and there's no excuse. They're on their own. So I've always avoided stand-up. That's too much. I do one act and I do comedies as a performer. So I kind of know what they're going through and I love improv. I studied comedy improv a lot. I got a fake ID specifically to go to Second City in Chicago oh, really? before I wow. was 21 and I used to just hang around you know, and I got one of their great teachers, uh, improv teachers, which is Del Close, who's passed away, right. to be in the Blob playing the preacher, how great. who is a iconic uh, improv coach. So I, I I believe in that process. I do improv in my rehearsals, even for shows that aren't comedy, when time allows, not on the set, but pre- prior to the set, right. and we do polished drafts. With that, uh,
0: how do you feel on a set when an actor? Um, Something is always scripted, but going off script um, often allows an actor
1: to maybe get better or maybe throw the other actors off. Well, around, I them. try. I get How it. I, I get it out in rehearsal. Yeah. So by the time I get to set, I'm not telling them they can't. Right. But they've had. We The mask is is a lot of things that are terrific about it. Happened at wonderful uh, table reads at my house uh, that were very, no one knew it would be that big of a hit, and I got six or eight of them around at a time, and. We were playful, but, uh, you know, Jim liked that script. And right. we, we had most of that scripted, but there were a number of things. And then my in my little personal history, the best improv was Jim blowing smoke.
0: Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> as,
1: and blowing a... He, he asked me on the set, we had a physical gag. He was playing a French character romancing Cameron on a park bench. Uh. And he was playing like a Pepe Le Pew type character. And <laughs> yes. the gag we had written and I'd storyboarded was him holding about 20 cigarettes and inhaling and they would all suck down at once. And that physical effect did not work. Right. N- knowing more than I know now, I can't imagine it ever really working that well. <laughs> right. But we, we had to come up with something and Jim said, well, can I s- blow a heart and then squirt an arrow of smoke out my nose? And I said, I'll bet you can. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that because I felt I could put all that in later. It's a very cute gag, completely improv Jr.: Well,
0: this too was a groundbreaking film in that, in a way, it was the first visual effects comedy. Um, the the visual effects were still fairly new, the Correct. CGI effects at that time. Correct. And tell me about how you went about shooting that and how you had to rely on—is this going to work or is this not? Well, because it was all vague. Everybody
1: else was nervous. Yeah, I was like, charge. I was—I okay. I just knew we could apply the new CGI techniques to comedy and dance. Because you knew effects. I—I I just am comfortable with effects. Yeah. So I never doubted it. If people were telling me you can't do it. I was—I <laughs> mean, really, it is a lesson in those in my own being kind of a maniac, not to give up, but the. I had a, I assembled a great team again, right. because we're in, in a situation like that. You're only as good as your team, and I mentioned Greg Canham to you earlier. Greg was brilliant, and I said my biggest problem here is I have the most genius rubber faced comedian yes. in the world out of, in gym, and I don't want to cover him with the latex. So we determined we'd build the effect off of his bone structure, chin, right. cheeks, forehead. And try to blend it down and give him as much. Of so his, you keep his face. Yeah, we got to keep his face. And mm-hmm. and then Jim is so brilliant. He played through, uh, as we all know. I just had a, a wonderful meeting with Tom Woodruff, who I've known from years ago. Oh, Tom, he's a effect. great effects makeup. Effect. He's he's one of the best working now. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the performers got to meet us halfway and play through the makeup, no matter how good right. we think it is. Right. So Jim was brilliant with that. I. In the tests, I had green contacts on his eyes, which I thought I needed, but I, I thought it cut his soul off. So yeah, you cover it. the eyes. You're, you're going to lose the love. Yeah. It really was a love story. So,
0: And it was great because this was... Was this Jim's first lead role in a movie? <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, so, well, what happened is I wanted it to be. Right. And, I, and it's a weird story. I had passed on Ace Ventura and wanted to make The Mask. We got that going, and then Ace came back with brilliant Tom Shadyak doing a complete rewrite. Right. So he made a great project out of Ace Ventura. So I was like, Jim, please do good in Ace. So <laughs> yeah. I wanted to be your first right. feature. Okay. And they and our post was nine months long because of all that CGI. Right, of course. So our post was huge. So they were shooting while I was prepping, I think. Ah, okay. You know, it was one of those so things. Kind of so to me, to, to most people, it was as if it was his first feature. But right. you know, fortunately, as it turned out, Tom and Jim did a fantastic job on Ace. And that opened the door for an audience. Yeah, absolutely. Figure. And then we, yeah. for some, for some, we we got more universal with Jim and Cameron globally. In, and I'm, I'm going to try not to pat myself on the back too much, but I had such a problem on back to school overseas because Rodney right. Dangerfield did not translate. Very American. Z- and Z- Ace Ventura. Does not trans- the- so when I got a chance to direct comedy, I said, I'm going to do something that will work overseas. I'm going to do something right. that plays kind of beyond language. Because mm. what I did study was silent film in school. Yeah. And another good teacher, and I realized that those stunts and those effects were actually much more sophisticated than people give them credit to. So, some of those stunt gags are to this day, the Keystone Cops and things that were going on with Laurel and Hardy. Buster Keaton. Yeah, Buster yes. Keaton, Charlie Chaplin. I mean, these guys amazing. Were, were amazing athletes. Right. And risking and their filmmakers lives. filmmakers in their own right. And, yeah, and, and I applied a lot of that to having somebody as brilliant as Jim, and it's no exaggeration. Yeah. I asked him at the time about this stuff because I was saving money because what he was doing physically was so good I could cut the effect because, <laughs> you know, you don't want to yeah. mess something up that's it's like giving a beautiful woman plastic surgery. I don't want to start to fake yeah. this if you can actually do it,
0: you know? Yeah. best special effect is a great actor. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So that was, if I have to say one thing about that process, uh... It was about not getting in the way of the character, mm-hmm. in other words, not putting, not covering him with a special effect, or not putting a special effect in way of story or character on this, you know, frame by frame level, and playing into what Jim was doing. So in some cases, I did an optical, but it would be something different than i had originally planned to play into what he was doing a little bit better.
0: And this was a comic book adaptation.
1: It was a comic book that was more of a what was called splatterpunk at the time. Right. A black yes. and the original the mass comics now kind of followed my movie afterwards right. the original mass comics a uh, brilliant uh, comic was black and white and he'd pull out an axe yeah. and he would have a one-liner and he would chop everybody up and there'd <laughs> oh, be geez. blood everywhere yeah so it was v- so i said to new line at the time i said this is so they wanted a new elm street type series ah. and i said well this is so much like freddy i don't know if it's different enough from freddy you know, and I, I said, really, there's this guy, Jim Carrey, and we should roll with making this a comedy.
0: Interesting, because no one would, would look at that movie as it exists now and think this was originally intended to be a horror film.
1: I, f- I find there's some i'm glad you say that it's true i i happen to think there's some kinetic similarities between comedy and horror oh there's no question a- having done them both it's yeah. all about setups and payoffs yep. and and, and they have this inner light from the performers the element of surprise yeah absolutely um, and Sus- suspense reaction suspense and surprise are you getting a scream or a laugh yeah neither one neither one are easy but they're really exciting as a storyteller to go for
0: absolutely so who were the people who inspired you, the filmmakers who inspired you, whether it's the silent film ones or classic film ones or genre
1: people? You, you know, I, it's funny, I never get asked that often, but I had a number of influences. Uh, Francois Truffaut, and I'm not a big art guy, <laughs> but it's so interesting because uh, this just came up at a dinner party. Um, the the uh, Francois Truffaut's Day for Night, ever uh, seen that oh of course okay, so i was at college one oh, of the great movies about movies it's, it's one of the great movies about movies and it's cinema verite-ish and it's right. you know you're with a film crew a french film crew with an american actress and there's love stories and there's literally instinctually i knew that was kind of true right i had no real reference except really small films and it plays. felt
0: autobiographic. Yeah, yeah
1: it really felt wonderful i highly recommend that film so that 's when I decided I wanted to run away and join the circus. I was in my <laughs> senior year of college i didn 't have a lot of options besides business you know it would have been hard to get even that, not that I didn 't believe in myself, but i wasn 't motivated right uh, to to go into somewhat random uh, business type career or an advertising career yeah, like yeah this, you oh, know that's I've that's been around right? a little bit of advertising from my dad, but the, <laughs> the, there, there was no end to film. But I, I literally said to my friends in theater, you know, I'm going to go to L.A. Who's coming with me? <laughs> and nobody wanted to come. Nobody wanted to no, jump on the train. No one. That train <laughs> rolled out of the station with only me on it, you know. Uh, but, you know, I... So Truffaut, maybe the humanism of his yeah, character? Well, see, seeing what Truffaut did as a filmmaker, the fact that what Truffaut was in it was also affecting to me somehow. Right. And... and What the quality of life could be on a hard-working film set, it's still what I love about film. It is everything from truck drivers to ballerinas. Mm -hmm. It's It's the craziest conglomeration of talent and love and frustration and hard work you'll ever see. It's a microcosm family. That is so dysfunctional because you know you're all going to split, yeah. and you want to do every other movie together, but God knows what fate will bring. Right, and it is a family. I, I, as a director and writer, and and it, I've just produced and will again. But the, uh, you're kind of a parent slash host mm-hmm. slash cheerleader, yeah. And I've been in the trailer, and people have had some dark moments, and you know, it's just so interesting and challenging on a human level. How can I have Help these people have a good experience, but get something truthful out of them. Mm. And truthfully, even for the pop movies, I do. I'm not true foe, but I I am going for truthful moments in within the realm of that genre, whatever that genre is.
0: Yeah, you is don't or. make a choice between this is a low-budget movie, this is a big-budget movie, this is a genre movie, this is no, a horror movie. No. I mean, it's all Shakespeare, right? It, it Listen,
1: uh, I had trouble with Elm Street 3 originally because it dealt with teenage suicide, mm. and Prior to writing that, I worked as a volunteer in a halfway house in Hollywood with suicidal teams. And when I look back at the movie, I was pleasantly surprised. It's not just fluff. Some of those performances were inspired by some of the kids that I, I I was an unskilled helper. I played chess with one kid in particular who just needed better relationships, you know, things they asked me to do there. But the the intimacy of that has to bleed into your work. Well, it did. So, I mean, you don't want to be presumptuous. Right. But- part of what's good about Elm street three as i look back on it recently I was a screening i agreed to to join them for uh the first half an hour of that film has a little kernel of truth about the metaphor of suicide mm-hmm. i think all good horror has some resonant even if you intend it even if you don't i wanted to play freddie as a demon who encouraged suicide in those right. in those films, so it's, that's it, pretty potent. It, it kind of worked in the, fr- and then as the film goes on, it gets wilder. But right, you know, uh, that's the beauty of cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the that your
0: dreams can actually take physical shape on the screen, and Freddie as a metaphor for that is is the whole raison d'être behind film.
1: Absolutely, and what's really weird about making any dream movie, and one of the reasons I'm drawn to doing things about this amazing thing that happens at night with your subconscious mind. It's such a mystery. The theater experience is so dreamlike. Mm -hmm. What other place are we willing to go? We're willing to pay for a first-class seat in a plane to be as far away from others as possible. (laughs) But in a a great movie theater, you don't really mind. You might have a little elbow issue at some of the older theaters, but we'll sit in the dark with absolute strangers inches away (laughs) screaming or seeing something sexual you won't even want to talk about later or laughing out loud when does that happen? The herd instinct, the tribal instinct—that's part of our genetics—is is, it's one of the only things, only places it's on demonstration it, culturally now, besides sports. Sta- I would I would add sports stadiums. Right. In all fairness, I would add sports events and concerts where I've also had transcendental experience. The
0: shared experience seems to be particularly potent in cinema, with the horror genre and with comedy. You know, fear is contagious. And so is laughter.
1: This is one of the principles of of both is you've got to make sure your cast is having fun in a comedy to a great extent. Right. And this is why some of the actors in some of my earlier films were like, he was so hard on us. Because I I need them to connect with their fear. Right. And if I'm doing something supernatural with a young cast, with, I I respect actors. They can get, get to the place on their own, you know, but they want, I'm there if they want to work. Yeah.
0: You're there to encourage and cheer them on.
1: But with the younger actors, I make them bring, you know, a positive totem, whether it's, you know, something special their father gave them, you know, uh, a a religious item, you know, anything that that gives them a positive, positive meditation. If Mm. we're doing a day where they're really screaming and I'm actually having Freddie or somebody some coming after, you know, an 18-year-old actor. Right. I'll say, you need to take 10 minutes in the trailer, and they, they would promise me to do it. And if I'm spending all day putting them in a scary place, then I want to know that at the end of the day, they have some they, – they fill themselves up with good vibes. Because I learned in method acting on stage that this shit can go deep in your, in your subconscious mind.
0: Especially if you're good.
1: Yeah, especially if you mean it as an actor yeah. or as a director – again something i learned from some terrific new york uh, stage actors i method acted in college on improvisations on dracula and we experimented on our deepest fears and things like this and it it was it was psychologically affecting right so i think directors need to be responsible regarding these elements if we're playing with it in a film and I, I i know i have been and, and i tried to since that experience which which upset some of the cast greatly after months mm. of uh, in, improv.
0: Yeah, cuz it's tough not to carry that shit home.
1: If you're method acting. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ways to do it, just perform it. Yeah. But if you're going to go through that if you're gonna I to go
0: deep. I uh,
1: will I'll, I'll work with my experienced actors in different techniques and really love it. Yeah. Uh, with young actors I'll do improv, but I'll make it fun. You
0: know. And every actor has a different approach to how they get to where they're going to get, and you need to learn that very quickly. It can be a schizophrenic experience working with actors.
1: Absolutely. And then I work with some athletes. Uh, I worked with Schwarzenegger when he needed one more big hit on Eraser. That's what yes. he wanted. That was fun. <laughs> um, and this this uh, really uh, brilliant uh, action actor, martial artist. I, j- I just worked with. One of the things I told him going in in this experience in India was. During the rehearsal process, I said, you know, our goal, because I was working with him privately for a while first, is to have you as excited about the scene as you are about the moves you know you love to do. Because he would get so right. thrilled when yes. he's going to do some spectacular move. <laughs> yeah. I said, we're going to be, at, the scene itself, you'll be looking forward to. Yeah. And, it, and it, it, he he did feel that way, I was happy to say.
0: Every time. word is important, every moment is well, important.
1: Well, if, if they really know what the scene is about and the memorization part... It doesn't cause the main. The mechanical stuff. You've got to get yeah. past the mechanics. And then it's yeah. about are you listening? You're not just repeating a line the way you thought you should with a coach a month ago. You know? Uh, is is there something actually happening in the set? Yeah. And it it's not just, you know, the stage trained actor is something that can bring something absolutely amazing to a scene if yeah. if, if you have the right combination and treat it like some insane chemical reaction. Mm. And that's where you have to leave a little room for improv.
0: Yeah, you want the magic to occur. You can't guide magic completely. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. You can find it. Then the fun thing about yeah. film is when lightning happens in the bottle, yeah. as long as it was in focus. Yeah, <laughs> we know, can we, keep we, that yeah. part and
0: get rid of all the shit.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> Let's talk blob. Mm. Um, we've talked about sequels. Um, this is a remake you know the film is iconic. The original 1950s version of the Blob is iconic. Um, it has a very interesting history. We can talk about in a little bit. But what was your, where? Whose idea was it to remake the Blob? You mentioned earlier you and Frank had.
1: I I, uh, I, I came in. I had the rights by the time I corralled Frank Darabon. We became friends and were actually writing and rewriting each other on a different project that was purely in our heads. No one was paying us. Right. You know. And I said, let's do a a script of The Blob. And uh, I chose that project because even then, instinctually, I just, you know, first of all, I didn't have the ability to get a great film rights. And The Blob was a little bit, at that time, a forgotten classic. It wasn't, you know, there were very few people looking to do remakes of The Blob. Right. There
0: was The Fly, and people would have thought the idea of that. Being remade was silly, and that was shortly before you did The Blob. Correct. And the Blob, The Thing. Uh, there were all 80s remakes of movie titles that sounded cheesy at the time
1: well the Blonde was the cheesiest but the fly yeah. the, fly could, well, oh, the yeah. fly could have been but the, you know they did such a great job with the marketing and Cronenberg made a transcendent film it was a one great of film. the
0: best monster movies in history and it's so it, it, a great movie period it's not just a great genre film
1: it's it's terrific and it uh, Goldblum and, G- and Gina Davis did such a fan and i guess Goldblum wasn't the first choice it's just one of those things that yeah. shows you you will find the actor Everything worked out. It really did. Fantastic job. So in the case of the blob, you acquired the rights yourself. I got the rights for possibly nothing. I didn't have money at the time. I just went out to Jack Harris's house. Uh I I managed to get his phone number and said... He was a
0: famous exploitationeer of the 50s and 60s. Correct,
1: correct. And I I, I met him in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, I just was this kid saying, look, I can get this made. Yeah. I had no reason to believe I could get it made cuz I had, I'd done almost nothing at the time. Maybe I maybe I'd produced back to school. That might have been right. it, but I didn't really get money for that. I got good calling it, card though. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I I didn't have money in my pocket, put it like that. You produced a hit movie. Yeah, I produced, you know, as a producer for hire. Yeah. And uh and then he was a great guy. And he he had that sensibility like Corman. And he's passed away, you know, but what a, what a guy. Yeah. And uh, he saw the ambition, which is still exciting for me. I just met a, a, a young writer today who I admired, and I said, let's, let's get a lunch. He's really good. We all have to come up from something. So I think he saw that in me, and he gave me that shot. And Bob Shea saw it and said, I didn't want to do The Blob, but we were thinking about doing another Elm Street. And he, they were basically saying, Convince us to do another Elm Street. Right. How would you convince us? Right. And and and, and I. And you would rather do the Blob. Well, I didn't. Was it? I was so knocked out by the original. I thought doing three, I couldn't have cared less that two didn't do that well because I right. thought let's. I'd already done Dreamscape as a co-writer. Right. And I thought
0: so. You'd gone into the dream world of her a couple be, of times. I'd yeah. been.
1: I'd been there, and I just thought this has so much potential because Wes was only able at that time with the original idea to have. Super spooky guy in the street, and there were some very surreal things like the phone licking her ear, right, and the iconic bed, things, the yeah. bed, and the running up the steps turning into mm. marshmallow stuff. <laughs> so they were all great dream things, but I thought we could go into to me, Dreamscapes is a real thing. It's, right. you know, it's landscaping dreams. Right. You know? And I had studied with the team at Stanford, the dream researchers there, while I was really? writing Dreamscape. Uh, I got in uh, I got myself in there and worked in the real dream center. And they called themselves Niramnats at the time, which comes from the Latin. It means into dreams, like astronauts. Right, right. So I mean, they were they were into cogent dreaming, mm-hmm. lucid dreaming, mm-hmm. and how not to wake up and shape your dreams. And so that's a lot of my philosophy in Dreamscape came from those gentlemen, and uh, I just wanted to take it further on Elm Street Three. So they didn't. So I did the Blob after, right. and I was lucky to get the Blob made after that.
0: That was eighty eight, right?
1: I, I couldn't. Something I'm like so that. bad on the years I'd have to look at the I think
0: so. I think it's the same year I did my movie for a New Line as well. So. Great. Yeah.
1: That was a wonderful time to be there. And it was great. And during the mask, I got to say, Mike DeLuca was a real comrade at arms for yeah. New Line. A yeah. great guy. He
0: uh, was 21 become. years old when we did Critters 2, and he was their youth specialist. Wow.
1: Yeah. yeah. And DeLuca yeah. was a riot and brilliant and supportive of every artist, yeah. and it's what led to his stellar career as a producer.
0: Yeah, and as a studio exec and all mm-hmm, that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, about the blob, a lot of physical effects in that movie. Tim Correct. Lee Gardner basically in charge uh, um, of a lot of it. And uh, I mean, you had a ton of makeup effects.
1: We it's had, we, 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 what happened is it was a very ambitious film. To but, say the least. But it, but it didn't go as well as The Mask did later for me, in uh, that the blob stuff. Was so heavy. Even after we got lucky with some early experiments with Blob, which turned out to be unlucky, because we had magical videotape doing some right. reverse gags with full-scale right. Blob that looked so cool. Turned out they were kind of an accident, right? <laughs> right? It was a lucky, a lucky. Okay. The tests were lucky, a very lucky day that were hard to recreate on the first unit set. Interesting. So I called everybody. Uh, Tony Gardner was on from the beginning, and Tony Tony's responsibilities became larger and larger. What mm-hmm. Yatman came in but with brilliant brilliant teams of people. We used several teams right. at the time because the blob itself, we had to keep pushing blob days back because we <laughs> we couldn't quite get a functioning blob. Right. I'm very proud of the full scale effects, particularly Donovan Leach's death. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and Candy's death in the phone booth. These are these are gags that stand up. Really well today. That were full scale gags.
0: Yeah, and the organic quality. Well, they're so realistic. That's the thing. You really did not settle for something that was. This is good enough. Yeah. I mean, every shot, every makeup effect shot, every physical effect shot is organic and feels uh, like. Thank it's
1: you very really much. I, I, I give it three out of four. There's <laughs> well, still there's still a few good. where you know we know what we want. Seventy-five percent. Yeah. So, it's, it's but but the ones that worked were dynamite. Yeah. Check out the shot. That's a, the last. Shot of Candy's death is uh, a camera right above a doll that's about a two foot tall doll really? Eric Allard made. And I took blob, st- blob stuff in air mortars. So it was a large miniature. Wow. We had a miniature phone booth to go with it. We had three takes of this stuff, and I had air mortars from four sides wow. of blob full of the blobs, <laughs> blob goo, <the> blob goo <laughs> in silk balls. We, we, did, we did what we called prom dresses. Which uh-huh. were spray painted silk, detailed silk, and we filled it with methicill, which is extremely heavy, milkshake thickener yeah. used at McDonald's at the time. I don't, right. know if they, I don't know if they still use it, but it is a food thickener, and it's heavy. It's as heavy as water, and it it was very difficult to work with. But that that particular shot still blows my mind because it's a jointed doll, and her hair looks totally real. looks totally full scale as her body's impacted with these
0: things. Ah, uh, the veracity of the effects in that are, are <laughs> remarkable. So, just one last question. What is the project you haven't made yet that you're
1: dying to make? Wow. I've got one or two. Yeah. You know, I Anything don't... Anything you can talk not, about? Not really. Okay. I mean, the one that is a larger budget film is still hovering out there, mm-hmm. and I've we, we all have the Moby Dick of films we'd like to make. <laughs> yes. So I have one of those.
0: And we never get to
1: make those. Well, you, know, <laughs> you, you never know. this one. But they, they <clears throat> spawn other yeah. things. In fact, the film I did in India is the result of writing another script with ancient mythology. Uh-huh. That's what I'm referring to. And folks in India really liked it a lot and knew I was you know uh, resonant uh, with cultural mythology mm-hmm. and you know, really care about presenting different cultures in, in a good light. Uh, so that, you know, each, you don't, you, you, you take a a goal and there might be something else fate has in store for you that can come as a good result from that. So that's, that's that case. Uh, I want I I really do want to go back to comedy, but I have to have the right story. I'd love to work with Jim again. Jim's yeah. out there getting back into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's something that's on my mind. And I am looking at doing something. I'm trying to outdo myself in supernatural thriller horror genre with one project. So I'm having I'm having a lot of fun in, in town working on it right now after all this time in India. Oh, it's so great to keep evolving. And, and that film Jungly will be out in April. Great. And and we'll talk we'll talk then about
0: it. Yeah, because that's something that sounds very different from the oeuvre of the Oh, Chuck it's Russell. it's
1: different mm-hmm. from everything. Yeah. It's this interesting fusion of joyful India action cinema, complete with a big dance in the middle of the movie, (laughs) which they knew I could handle because of the mask. I said, look, I've done dances for no reason before. This is (laughs) going to be fun for me and martial arts and elephants. That sounds good. I'm trying to keep on the down low. I guess this... Podcast. I haven't really announced. We're this all film. just friends. Yeah. yeah, but but it's a very interesting. That'll be audience. that'll. we we'll start talking about that next year?
0: That sounds great, Chuck. Thank you so much for joining us. A total pleasure.
1: And may I say, and I wanted to say this after your introduction, but you asked me such compelling questions. You've you've been not only a great filmmaker, but kind of the shaman of of, <laughs> of, of, of all of us, and yeah. helped connect so many wonderful people. Uh-huh. And and thank you for doing this kind of podcast. But everyone appreciates it uh, myself thank included how you how you, connect, how, you, you. <laughs> con, how you've connected all these people over the years well i don't know if your audience knows that but man that's true
0: well these uh, you know the filmmakers within our genre are a very special breed and it's we don't work together so it was really important to me that we meet each other and yeah. get to know well, each other yeah and because
1: hollywood is a big glossy machine right. and it's true the, us as individual filmmakers and so much of of horror is independent film You helped create a community, so I want to thank you for that.
0: Uh, Thank you, Chuck, and we'll do this
1: again soon. Can't wait to see. Take care.
0: All right. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at com. Reach us on Twitter at postmortemmg and on Instagram on postmortemgram. Thanks a lot for listening.
1: Thanks for listening to Post with
0: Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.